Hello, and welcome to the Fight Ransomware Podcast. I'm Norman Guadagno, and we are brought to you by Carbonite, the data protection company for business. In each episode, we'll be talking with featured guests about ransomware and other serious threats to your business data. As always, I'm joined by Fight Ransomware editor, Ellen O'Brien. And as always, I'm glad to be here, Norman. Yeah, and I am glad you're here. And today we have a fascinating guest, and uh, that is Jack Danahy, who is a co-founder and CTO at Barclay. And for and those of you who might not know, uh, Barclay is uh, an endpoint security provider. They're based here in Boston. And prior to that, Jack was director of advanced security at IBM. Oh, so he's he's been in the big leagues there, as they like to say in baseball. Uh and let's hear our Let's Go Red Sox for you know continuing to hold our lead. And Jack, welcome to the Fight Ransomware Podcast. Well, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, we're, uh, we got a lot to cover today, so Ellen and I are going to pepper you with questions and uh, see where we can go from there. Uh, I, I think the first thing is uh, we want to maybe just get a little bit of your background. You've been doing this for a while. How did you start? How did you get hooked on this very uh, field of data security? And now you spent 20-some-odd years working in it. Maybe just give us a quick uh, overview of how you got here, and then we can talk about where we go from here. Sure. When you, when you mention the number of years and I see the state of security today, I sort of question the way I've spent the last quarter of a century. Um, I actually came into security pretty early. We were actually trying to design secure interfaces around uh, what used to be called the distributed computing environment. It was a way in which to network computers and process distributed applications before the Internet was really a thing. Mm -hmm. And when the Internet did arise, um, I was working at uh, both Brannick and Newman, the big ISP, Debian Planet here in Boston. Yep. And uh, at the time, there were so few people who knew anything about security uh, that it was great. Um, I ended up uh, running the engineering group that developed the first managed security service, a thing called Site Patrol. And I'll tell you, as a, as a person who's a software engineer, there are a few ways that you can use your skills that actually make you feel like you're doing something for the greater good. I'm sure there are excellent people who do things like that in healthcare or in other ways in law enforcement. But for me, the ability to try to protect innocent people who are getting hurt by what at that time was uh, a newly arising class of people who were breaking into systems and hurting people made it pretty rewarding to get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, start, starting that early with so few people in the industry, I've always had the, the great good luck to be continually learning new things and doing new things while I'm working in is what is ostensibly the same industry. Uh, so really, you predate the Internet. I do too, so I, I can say that, uh, which is an amazing sort of leap from... Uh, the DCE world to a an internet world, and I'm assuming you were there when Al Gore invented the internet, and were part of just making that transformation from what was something that a small group of people looked at and cared about to almost overnight, everybody in the world was touched by, and the scope of what you did uh, changed in terms of the sheer number of people that, that it touched so rapidly. Yeah, it, it, that's a really insightful comment because in those early days, even the companies that we look to now as real leaders in cybersecurity were really just starting to get their legs underneath them. You know, I remember at the time, BBN was, was one of the organizations that built the first ever TCPIP implementations, which is why Planet was such a leader back in those days as an internet service provider. And so I was working with guys and gals 
who had worked really hard on the initial sort of inception and productization of this capacity for per- pervasive interconnectivity. And we would go and meet with people and help them to become connected and talk to them about security. And you had really big Fortune 100 companies who were like, yeah, I, I think I'll plug my I think I'll plug my network into that internet thing. And in the idea, even in those days, of something that we consider so fundamental, like a firewall or some basic encrypted tra- traffic, was news to them. And so, you know, I think we've seen the customers, and I'm sure you've seen this among your own users, uh, have gotten so much more knowledgeable and so much more sophisticated. And the unfortunate part is, is uh, the folks who are trying to hurt them have, have done likewise. So yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride, you know, since before people knew how to connect. Yeah, and it's certainly not over. So. Now it's 2017. And how, what's your assessment, Jack, of how the uh, C-suite is uh, dealing with uh, data protection now that WannaCry is, I don't want to say a household word, but certainly one lots and lots of people know. You've got the perspective of having been inside uh, with a small group uh, more than two decades ago who were more aware of it than anywhere anyone else. Uh, we keep I guess, we keep hearing that the uh, end user, as you say, is more informed than ever. I guess my question is: uh, is the are the people outside the IT team in the C-suite also uh, keeping up to date with information? Are they proactive enough? How, how, what kind of progress do you think they've made? Number one, I think that they've made it an immense leap in terms of understanding the urgency of this type of problem. I think what ends up happening sometimes is those of us who are who care a lot about cybersecurity or you know perhaps even the people who are writing about it sometimes see a disconnect between that level of priority and the level of readiness in some of these organizations and you know the example you use WannaCry is a great one right because WannaCry particularly in terms of the way that it spread laterally took advantage of a, of a vulnerability that Microsoft had patched you know a couple of months before the attack actually happened right so I, I think, though, that part of that is uh, the responsibility for that lies in a disconnect in language. Right? So when a CEO or a CFO asks a question of the security team or the CISO and says, you know, how are we doing in terms of security? I think sometimes the question that they're asking may be a different question than the one that's heard, whereas the CEO is asking a question more about, are we doing everything we should do to be protected? Are we balanced in terms of the way in which we offer our services and protect our services? Those kinds of questions. And typically, I think what ends up happening is the security person who every day is worried about the myriad of ch- challenges and the myriad of threats that they're seeing. They're like, yeah, we're, we're doing the best we can, right? And unfortunately, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is sometimes I think the CEO just hears the, yeah, and the CISO here is, I told them we're doing the best we can, but we need to do more. And so sometimes there is that disconnect. So I think overall, the C-suite has gotten a lot more aware, a lot more educated about the broad nature of the challenges and the urgency for it. But I think there's a natural disconnect between sort of the technical underpinnings of all the things that have to happen to give them the kind of protection that they think they'd like to have. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how has ransomware played into your conversations with the C-suite? Are they more... Uh, aware than ever that they could be vulnerable? Uh, do they ask specifically about ransomware? We talk a lot about ransomware here, and I am not sure uh, how, let's say, a mid-market uh, C- C-suite talks about ransomware. Is it one of the five security <laughs> priorities, or is it number one, keeping them awake, or her? It's funny. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't see a lot of the C-suites you know, creating a differentiated list of the top five and where ransomware has been, I think, 
enormously helpful for those of us who care about security is it has put um, an understandable face on the threat that are associated yep. mm-hmm. with underinvestment in cybersecurity or underinvestment in recovery that's hard to do without a real fact in front of them, right? So if we look backwards and we look at the reporting over the course of even starting as early as 2014, where we begin to see a big upswing in ransomware instances, you know, the story started off kind of as interesting pieces. A police station loses all the data associated mm-hmm. to it, a local government, perhaps a small healthcare provider. And so, you know, you begin to read these things. And so particularly for people in the mid-market, it said, all right, these attacks are no longer only focused at the big companies that looks like they have that look like they have vaults inside them. This is affecting regular companies who arguably will have a harder time recovering. So I think it did a good job of raising that that sense of appropriateness to the mid market of cybersecurity technologies and, and recovery technologies that they may not have seen before. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that the more recent attacks, things like WannaCry, have shown that even the best organizations, when they make a couple of small mistakes, can find themselves exposed. And so, you know, maybe ransomware has been sort of the great equalizer in terms of understanding that everybody's at risk and that they have to think hard about the way they're going to protect themselves and the way they're going to recover if something bad does happen, if they're going to find themselves prepared for the next one that comes down the pipe. Yep, absolutely. I love that uh, way of looking at it, Jeff, because as you were going through that example, what that made me think about was, in some sense, you know, the the role of ransomware, which we we really need to think clearly about, is not unlike, uh, in some ways, the role of uh, of web browsers was to the to the internet itself. Right? We we all used the internet for a long time before we had the uh, the hypertext protocol and HTML. But when we had a browser, it just sort of made it real, right? It, it created a new reality and a way for people to have shared experiences. And I think ransomware may be the first of, and potentially there'll be others to follow, of uh, an instance of a malicious threat that people can really relate to and see. And regardless of the fact that potentially even the delivery vehicle underneath it may continue to evolve, and we're seeing that happen, uh, it now becomes that face of what's actually happening that the security world cares about, that we all care about, uh, is often the stuff underneath it. But it's the ransomware becomes that that relatable face for the common person who doesn't really understand some of the details of threats. And the fact is, some of the worst malicious threats are, are hidden, right? Somebody who's exfiltrating your files in the background or sitting there as a sleeper, just waiting, you don't even know it's there and it has no visibility, but it's certainly a significant threat to your business. Ransomware has put a face on it. Right. And just think about the amount of protection that people will do or the amount of investment people will do in being able to get their business back online after these things happen because they're worried about ransomware. They may very well detect that credential stealer or that more quiet program that exists on the same system because the protection could as equally protect them from that. And so ransomware is sort of the signal flare that got them to do the right thing. You know, it it reminds me, and again, this is dating ourselves, but if you look back at the Tylenol scares in 1982, right, you had uh, an industry that was, in in all industries in packaging, weren't doing tamper resistance, right, on their products. And so that led Johnson & Johnson, who did a great job in response to that horrible event, 
to start creating an entirely new methodology for manufacture that people who are less than 50 don't even remember a time there wasn't a seal on top of everything you bought, and it was quite easy for people to introduce badness into products. And so I think in the same way, the, the pain that we've gone through with ransomware is raising an awareness to a level where taking the right steps to prevent it and react to it are going to help people in ways they never imagined against other kinds of threats. Yeah, totally agree. Great example as well. I'm wondering, you know, Jack, as you think about the work that, that you and your team and the industry as a whole do, uh, how much, or rather, uh, let me rephrase that, what should the balance be between, obviously, the the type of work you do in detection and prevention of malicious threats, but also the this educational component, right? I, I think we're we're not investing enough in the educational side because we think that just solving the problem from a, a technology perspective is sufficient. And and I, having been in the technology world for a long time, know that the best technology without people actually knowing why they should use it is just of no value whatsoever. And there is history littered with great technologies that faded into the woodwork because people just didn't know how or want to adopt them. We talk about the human error factor all all the time here. Yeah, and you know, how, how can we how can we get get the right balance between building the best tools, the best prevention, the best AI, and helping people have a context, if you will, for understanding that, right? The, the Tylenol scare was a great one. The context was uh, people died. Uh, therefore, I now need to be very cognizant of opening these pill bottles that I could just open up and who knows what was inside there. So now we always look for the seal. Right? Is, there some, is there some better thing you think we can be doing as communicators around data protection, data security that will help, uh, help balance this out in the field? And I, and I think that that idea of balance is exactly the right point, you know, to start this discussion with. Because when people ask me this question when I'm out speaking, I'll typically tell them it's like the age-old expression, right? Teach a guy to fish uh, or give a guy a fish, right? And in security, it's exactly what the problem is. A lot of technology vendors, right, we want to make the problem go away for people, right? So you can think of that as giving them a fish, that, that less aware, less sophisticated user who's going to make mistakes, let's give them a fish. Let's try to pretend we're going to give them a perfectly protected system that they'll never have a problem with. Unfortunately, as soon as that protection is no longer 100%, suddenly they have no more fishes, right? Yep. So you have to teach them how to fish, right? The F fish, not the pH fish, right? But then you, if you teach them, exactly as you described, Norman, if you teach them about the risks that they're under, and then use the underpinning technology to both protect them while they're learning, because there's going to be a ramp, and also to monitor them as they go forward to see perhaps where their blind spots are, where they have to learn more, well, then you're allowed to generate both a user and a system that together are far more secure than they would be if either I just sent the person out for training and enforced it when she came back or he came back and, you know, they were doing the wrong things. We'd send it back to, you know, remediative training or whatever, uh, or simply provide a technology and hope that it maintains its status of being up to date. I mean, at Barclay, we work really hard every night. The systems are training on thousands and thousands of samples of malware and goodware to give people the protection that we think they need. At the same time, we spend time in our messaging 
When we see something, we provide an educational opportunity to teach the user about what they did wrong and also message the administrator to say, hey, this user or an aggregate, this group of users may need more training so you can trend it over time. And, you know, ultimately, I think for those of us in the security industry or in the recovery industry, we would sort of love for our jobs to change very much and almost go away because the users stopped making the simple mistakes that makes it easier for the bad guys to have bad things happen. And instead, you know, we help them to be more self-sufficient, right? right? That some combination of our technologies and the users, basically their knowledge, right, and their awareness of the problem would lead to a more secure experience for them of their world at, at work, but also the, the applications that, are, that they're developing, perhaps, or the services that they're offering, so that the public who's interacting with these systems are also benefiting from that increased awareness and increased protection. Absolutely. So, and not to go down a slightly different path here, but as, you, as you're saying that, it, it sort of begs the question in my mind if there's both a missed opportunity and perhaps a burden on the OS vendors, and specific thinking about Microsoft and Google and Apple, to have created a... Obviously, they want everyone to feel that their OSs are safe, but should they have created a little bit more of a, uh, a sort of insistence or education when you enter the operating system to remind you that you're at risk, right? It's not unlike, you know, before you take out a high-speed vehicle or you do anything, you know, you take out your chainsaw, there's a big red sign on your chainsaw that says, you know, wear glasses and don't put your hand where the blade goes. Those, it feels like the, the OS vendors, to a certain extent, have... Uh, sort of abdicated responsibility and left it to third parties around this. What's your feeling about that? And again, I uh, not to be critical of, of the big OS vendors, they they do a great job, but I'm just curious as to how you see uh, if they should have had more responsibility here. I think they're in a tough position, right? In the same way that a fast food vendor produces like a 76-ounce cup of soda, and that's probably not the best idea for their customers, uh, they did it because the customers will buy it and the customers want it. And, and I remember with the, with the, the wars at the time between Unix systems people and Microsoft systems people and what's better and the feature functionality requirements that are driven every single day at these vendors, whether it's by the applications that are going to run on them, the performance that the users want to see, the platforms they're supposed to support, the heterogeneity, right, that they're yep. expected to offer. I think it opens up the door through the demands of the customer that they have some of the problems that they evidence. Now, should they be better? Let's use your excellent chainsaw example, right? Why does the chainsaw have a sign on it? Is it because um, Husqvarna has decided that this is a good thing to have on there? Probably not, except for the fact that they're going to get sued if it's yep. not seen that they're taking adequate protection. So now we run into this confluence, right, between I know what we should do to help people recognize that they need to be more secure but I also know what they want to do so I can sell more of whatever it is I make. And there isn't that counterbalance currently in, in the computer science world, in, uh, in the world of technology that says there's something actionable, right? There's something actionable that sort of tips the scales towards prudence, that tips the scales to informing the customer that what they're going to do is really dangerous. You know, when you go to the car dealer, unless you know, and I've never bought one, but if I go to the Ferrari deal and I go to buy my Ferrari, I'm going to assume that the dashboard doesn't have something across the top of it in bright orange letters that says, dude, really, really fast, you can hurt yourself. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't have that. I, I've test-driven the uh, 
Right. But uh, but the, the example that popped to mind as you were saying that, uh, which of course is driven ultimately originally by lawsuits, is the fact that every single uh, coffee cup we have has a warning on it. Caution, contents may be hot, right? Uh, and that's right. only there because of a of, of a lawsuit. And that became sort of almost a joke, right, that we all see that and we, we pay attention to it and then we don't pay attention to it. But uh, one wonders, and this is a discussion we can have with some attorneys sometime, if there would be at some point that potential class action lawsuit that all of a sudden, uh, you know, every device has to come up and says, warning, you may get hacked right? and right. give that warning to you front and center, not unlike the you know, contents may be hot. And I think part of the uh, challenge there would be how much uh, user education you would be responsible for right. doing on your own or if you owned a company. Like here at Carbonite, I think we were, uh, and I don't say this because you're in the room, Norman, but lucky enough to be part of that uh, an online training, the kind I'm sure Jack is familiar with. But I think people were cynical about it at first mm -hmm. uh, because we seem, we know we talk a lot about security, but then this online training came through with fake URLs, yep. phishing emails, uh, ways to uh, get hacked while you're sitting in a, the virtual cafe. And a lot of people said later, well, I write about security every day or I work on security products and I actually learned something in that training. That's and that's the kind of investment. I'm wondering, Jack, do you think companies are more likely to make that kind of user education investment these days? Or is it because Carbonite's in the business of data protection that they were willing to do it? I think it goes without saying that a company like Carbonite is definitely ahead of the curve when it comes to understanding what the risks are. But I do like to think, and, and we've seen some good examples of this in the public market, that people are becoming smarter and taking advantage of more of these things. And, you know, it used to be that I wasn't allowed to talk about what I do at dinner parties because everyone would just get depressed. You know, <laughs> just how open everything is. And so I ended up spending a fair amount of time uh, you know, more recently, having people ask me questions, right? And in fact, at Barclay, we've gotten a pile of questions. We talk a lot about the different kinds of malware, particularly about fileless malware, because the words in the security industry, they're, they're so malleable, right? And they've become so transformed through their everyday use that they don't mean very much. So we actually had to go out and create a tool called Stack Hacker that allowed people to build their own malware to go and test so mm -hmm. they could talk about it. And so yep. we find... You know, I consider our users not to be like, you know, the end user who's basically doing, you know, entry into the physician system or what have you. There are, they're the people we're protecting. Our users also require education, right? And these are the people who are the IT directors or the security managers who are making these decisions. And we're trying to help them get more aware as well, right? So there's all kinds of different awareness. And I'll tell you, I think that that increasing the awareness among the IT population about what security means. Maybe it's something that we sort of took for granted. There's so many smart people in IT. They already deal with so many complex issues. We sort of expected them to pick up security as something they do in their everyday job. And what we're learning, and maybe you're seeing the same thing, is sometimes they need more help than we thought they did. It's not just sort of the unwashed end user who, who isn't responsible for any kind of technology. It's also really smart folks who are in it every day, but the nature of security has changed so much in the last 10 years. It's hard for anybody to keep up, even those of us who do it for full-time living. Absolutely, right? It really, in my mind, ultimately, I think what ends up happening is security shifts away from IT and uh, HR uh, and actually becomes part of the user experience. And 
the things that you do on the back end for detection and prediction and prevention, obviously that's a that's a deep tech, deep computer science approach. But the education and empowerment almost has to make that shift to to user experience so that it, it's part of the overall experience of any product versus this sort of tack on caution contents may be hot that uh, we stick on the top of this coffee cup. And, and Ellen, you didn't notice that we removed it from several of our coffee cups and people burned themselves. They failed that test. Uh, we, we, I think we have to be rethinking the very nature of how people fundamentally just interact with technology because technology is is both powerful, but it also is potentially a little bit of a threat. And we're, we've, we've so hidden that threat layer in so many instances that people don't see it anymore and they're oblivious to it. But I'll tell you, in reference to Ellen's comment as well about the, the coffee being hot, right? That was easy to assign who was responsible, right? Major fast food vendor has overheated coffee. Yep. The victim gets hit. The sign arrives because somebody's getting sued, right? When we talk about the software vulnerabilities and the compromises of systems, man, that is that is really it's a responsible a responsibility. Is it? is it the operating systems vendor because an application was allowed to be exploited? Is it the application vendor's fault because they created vulnerable code? Yep. You know this is. This is one of the reasons why so few of these cases are actually actionable under a class action, because it is hard to define who caused, you know, what was the causative agent right. of no, the... Absolutely. Well, it's like any modern day, unfortunately, attack. There is, in retrospect, several weak points sometimes, right. you know, several uh, pla- right. places where we could have... We could have done better. Jack, uh, now that you're a, least, a less depressing um, dinner invite, it sounds like, <laughs> where, where, do you think, uh, where do you think we're headed? And, and, I mean, does anyone in your circle think, well, there will be a day when we put ransomware away when X happens, or is it that we must continue to evolve it as it evolves and big cyber attacks are our new way of life? Well, you know, for me, the the ransomware side, there's two different things in the question that you just asked, I think, Ellen. I think that part of it is that, for me, ransomware is the carjacking, liquor store theft, convenience store robbery kind of crime. And then there's the really big crimes, right, Mm -hmm. which are the more sophisticated APT data leakage credential theft kind of things. And I think they're both going to exist, right? I'll, I'll tell you with the ransomware, what's really been interesting in the last 18 to 24 months is uh, I've been talking about is the evolution of a perfect crime, right? Mm-hmm. Because in my mind, a perfect crime is profitable and it's simple to do and I'm not going to get caught, yep. right? And so originally, if you look back, you know, a little history lesson, the first ransomware attack, 1989, right? And the guy who did it ends up getting caught because he basically sent letters to people with floppy disks in them and it had a bank account that he was having people put money into. <laughs> so not really simple, not easy to scale, not a lot of money, not very profitable because the stuff that he was scrambling up wasn't that great. And also, he was completely knowable, right? So now flash forward, and we're talking about infrastructures where I can send out a single attack that uses worming and clickless infection uh, vectors, and it's very easy to send it out to a pile of people, and some number of them are going to get hit, right? So it's simple. Uh, you know, monkeys can do it. Yep. And absolutely. now I think about the profitability. Right. We've seen recently, I think there was a recent crisis attack 
where they were looking for tens of bitcoins. But even the bitcoin itself is becoming so valuable as a currency. Even one bitcoin is a pile of money. And the cost per attack is so low, whether you're using a rented service or an exploit kit. So the profitability is remarkably high. And then the fact they're using this pseudonymous, uh, pseudonymous uh, payment techniques in Bitcoin, right? So now they're not going to get caught. It's, it's almost completely anonymous. So if I've got a crime that makes me money, is really easy to do, and nobody's ever going to catch me, I can't see that going away anytime soon, right? And we, as a profession, have got to figure out how do we drive those things out. I don't think we can do much about the fact that these tools are simple to use because that's not what we're building. I don't think we can do much about the fact that the, the, the transfer payment mechanism is pretty anonymous. But we can certainly do a lot about profitability, mm-hmm. right? When I think about carbonized business, if it is very straightforward for my users to recover from these attacks by simply using the tools that they're already paying for from Carbonite, then that makes it less likely that they're going to pay for the ransom, right, which is the way the bad guy makes the money. And for us, if we do a good job of blocking it, well, send it as much as you want. You're not going to get it infected onto people's systems. And so, therefore, either you're going to have to increase the complexity of it or you're just not going to get very many of them. The profitability is going to go down. So I think that, you know, that... These are going to continue to happen in terms of the ransomware uh, as a, a pervasive mechanism attack, sort of, again, heterogeneous across the size of the industry, right? It doesn't matter whether you're a small healthcare provider, a police station, or a massive company. Ransomware can be pretty painful for everybody. Yeah, definitely. A great great way to look at it. and uh, not, not nearly, uh, you know, it is a perfect crime. Uh, and that makes you a great dinner guest. I, I was just going to say, I'm crime. beginning to get that dinner guest vibe. I, I know, I know. I was, I was, it feels like another Agatha Christie sort of murder mystery here, well, the perfect crime. Not paying the ransom <laughs> is an excellent tip. It, it is an excellent we, tip. We try That's, to tell people. Uh, yes, if you back can, up and you don't have back to. Back up and you don't have to pay because not when big institutions don't pay, people, we hope, take notice. Yeah, so. absolutely. So we're going to wrap up here because we covered a lot and we have 6,000 more questions that we'll probably cover in a future podcast, I'm sure. A uh, quick question for you, though, Jack, as we wrap up. Uh, as the uh, as a CTO and uh, co-founder at Barclay, where'd that uh, name come from for the company? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, it began when Mike and I first put the company together. We were trying to figure out a way to describe what we did that would be different. And we were very interested in creating protection that wouldn't bother the user. It would protect them without bothering them, right? Mm-hmm. So number one, you know, the, the technology had to be helpful without being overly intrusive. And we started to think about the imagery you typically see for security companies. And it's shields and angry people and lightning bolts and, you know, aggressive, angry images. We said, well, what protects you, but is also kind of nice to have around? And it's a dog, right? A good dog hangs out. It's your friend. It doesn't bother you too much. But when something bad is happening, it's going to make sure it takes care of you, makes the thing go away, um, makes a noise so that you know you're being protected. And so for us, the evolution of a security company into into the dog and into barkling was a pretty natural one, right? It's a it's a way to get protection that you can actually like, that's actually friendly to you. That's awesome. Great great story and, and a great product, too. And uh, we, uh, we love uh, what you're doing over there at Barclay. And thanks so much for your uh, insights and sharing your experience with us, Jack. It was really good to talk with you. Yeah. That's my pleasure completely. Thanks, guys. Uh, Ellen, that was awesome. Uh, I think we opened up a whole bunch of other cans of worms here as we think about the... Uh, 
the the way in which we can separate the sort of technology underpinnings, computer science part of of what Jack and others have to deal with from this ongoing education and, and evolution, and, and in some ways, as you and I have talked about before, ransomware almost becomes uh, a good thing as a, uh, a a way to help educate. Yeah, we people. were, uh, you know, had a few laughs at his expense about, uh, you know, being someone who's so aware of the realities that is depressing. But I thought found that optimistic that we've got uh, something that people can hold on to, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, also, maybe it sounds to me like he's fairly confident that, see, the C-suite gets it and are not dumping it, so to speak, on the IT, IT admins or the IT pros and saying, you take care of this that they actually do understand it as a priority. So I found that very encouraging. And I love the name. Yeah, no, it was, it was terrific. Well, uh, uh, that is a wrap for today. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Norman. See you t- next time. And remember, check out fightransomware.com and join the good fight. And caution, contents may be hot. <laughs>